Hello, friends. It's Ann West, Executive Director of the Island Health and Wellness Foundation, and we are back with another episode of the Just for the Health of It podcast. This is a special episode. Again, this week, I am sitting down with Rhonda Dodge and Tim Hakst. Uh, Both of these people are members of the Island Nursing Home Board, and they are here to answer community questions today. We do have uh, quite a few questions from the community actually to get to, but I do want to start the podcast with a check-in. So how has the conversation over the last week about the nursing home closure in the community been going? Are there any updates or, or anything you'd like to share before we begin? Uh, yep. Hi, this is Tim. Um, the, um, the, the board report that we published, I think, um, has started to help people appreciate the thought process through which we've gone and we've been getting questions, some of which we had a chance to answer with you last time on the podcast and some more of which I know we're going to answer today. Uh, we're in the newspaper um, as, a, as a set of questions that have been gathered from the community. And I, I would say that there, there's a, um, while we're delighted to talk through those questions and answer all of them, we can stay as long as you, as you need to do that. I do feel like there's been a bit of a focus on the um, financial implications and challenges of running the nursing home. And I, maybe this is our fault because in our report, we, in some of our questions, talked about the financial challenges. Um, and maybe it has gotten the discussion a bit distracted from the single defining challenge, which is our inability to staff the nursing home at this time. And so I'm, I'm hoping we can continue to get more questions about that. Um, we're, we've been talking about that a lot this week and making sure that we adjust our communication to emphasize that. And so you'll be seeing some stuff soon, but it, it, if you don't mind, maybe I'll test the waters with you to see if we're communicating this properly. Um, one of the exercises that we've been going through based on a request from someone in the community um, to understand how much money it might take to restart at a, in a minimum capacity. Um, we've been, we've been remodeling the absolute minimum, uh, staffing required for opening the, continuing to call ourselves a nursing home. And that is five nursing care patients and 12 residential care patients that if we wanted to have nursing care, that's the absolute minimum that we could admit. So if we had that many patients, five nursing, 12 residential care, off the top of your head, how much staff do you think we need to cover uh, our facility that way? Oh, wow. Okay. Give me a second to think it through. I'm, I'm picturing nurses. I'm picturing CNAs, um, CRMAs. You'd have to have dietary. Okay. I'm going to say 15. So that illustrates to me that, in fact, we haven't been getting the message out well. Uh, the, the correct answer is 79. What? And yeah, so, so because there, there's a lot of complexity to this. For instance, your first thought is, oh, we have five nursing care patients. So the, the, the state requires that we have one nurse per five patients. So right. we need a nurse. Yeah, well, we actually have to have 
three shifts, right? And and uh, so you need three, but then we also need, uh, you can't have only one medically trained person there at a time in case one is helping someone else, which doubles it. You also can't share resources between residential care and nursing care. So you need on both sides, you need dietary, you need uh, uh, director of nursing, you need uh, someone who were required to transport people to their appointments. They have to be medically trained in case there's an incident. So, so at a minimum, in order to open with the minimum amount of residents and patients, we need 79 staff. And I think folks don't appreciate yet uh, that it takes that many staff to order in order for us to operate safely. And I think they don't appreciate because we have not adequately communicated it. I'm, that's, that's an answer to your question. This is one of the things we've been learning about our communication. Um, and if I could piggyback on that too. Sure. Um, the, the state requires specific um, types of personnel for each type of program. And um, it doesn't matter if there's one person in that bed or 32 in the event of res care or 38 in the event of the nursing side. Um, it doesn't matter if we have one or 38. There are some positions that have to be there and are not based on ratios. So for example, we have to have a director of nursing if there is one medical patient. We have to have an activities director if there is one medical patient. We have to have a social services director if there is one medical patient. We have to have a registered, trained um, uh, dietary manager who understands food textures and that sort of thing with one medical patient. We have to have a pharmacy consultant. We have to have a nurse consultant. So all of these things on nursing. On res care, we have to have a pharmacy consultant. We have to have a nurse consultant. We have to have for both sides, infection control. For both sides, we have to have a nurse who is, um, uh, I, I take that back, on the hospital side, the uh, medical side, we have to have a nurse who is trained in documentation to code the chart. We have to have a different person, different level on the residential care. So all the things that you don't even think about that help to support operations are in, for the most part, required positions by the state. And it doesn't matter if we have one patient on each side or a full census. And in fact, the difference we figured between that minimum 13.5 versus full census was only 25 employees. So, so Pretty significant. And so that, that, that complexity is something that, and I don't think we've been getting across. And there's, there's one um, additional component to that, which is uh, if we, were to try and open uh, at a minimum capacity um, with 79. We say 79, technically, I think it's, is it 72, Rhonda, or 73 that are required by regulation? The, the additional five are, are additions that we believe are required to provide the level of care that, that we uh, have expected from the nursing home. 
So the 79 minimum, um, uh, if we were to go to the former staff who, with whom we've kept in touch and who have expressed interest in coming back if we're able to reopen, um, and, if, and if, if we were able to talk every one of them into coming back, and it's a big if, that's 22 people. So if we can talk everybody into coming back, we still only have a third of the staff required to open minimally. So the scale of the staffing challenge is monumental. And fundraising, while important, we're deaf, like we've said this a hundred times, fundraising is important, but it does not create that staff. And this is a staffing challenge that we're seeing across the state and across the country and everybody's facing it. And so, so I just wanted to take a minute and underline that and let you know that what we've learned from the communication in the last few weeks is that we're going to start to try and get that information out a little bit better and start seeing next week, we're gonna release some of the numbers that support all that because I know people have been asking for that detail um, just to underline how the scale of that problem. Wow, I, I'm still caught on that number and how far off I was. Um, Thank you so much for that detail because it's so important. Obviously, I've been part of the discussions in many different ways uh, since the beginning. And only just now in this <coughs> moment, as you explained it that way, did it hit home. And I got it. Um, I, I thought I knew the staffing. I mean, not that I knew it. It's very regulated. But um, to think that I was that far off, um, it's a good thing I'm okay being wrong. And thank you for correcting me. <laughs> Well, yeah, don't, so, and, and, and we apologize for not saying that all more clearly. I, I think the challenge has been that we've been elbow deep in the data for a while and sure. we knew this was here, but not until we enumerate it with that number does it start to sink in for, for everyone. So, so anyway, you'll, you, you'll, we'll, we'll be providing a little bit more data to, to describe the details that Rhonda went through just so everybody uh, can understand that. Perfect. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. What a great way to start the podcast. So now we're going to jump into some community questions. And um, these appeared in this week's Island Advantages. Some of these questions uh, we've addressed previously, and we'll note that when we get to those questions. But let's go ahead and just tackle them one by one. And the first question was actually directed in the writing of the question towards Tim. So I will let you take this one. It says, you recently said in an email to the town of Stonington that the Island Nursing Home Board's two-page report as published in the newspaper is not a recommendation, but a final decision. On what date did the board vote to close the facility? And are there approved minutes of that resolution, discussions, and meeting? So, I think that this is referring to a response I gave to a request from the town for more detailed financial data. And they referred to our report as a recommendation. And I chose to clarify that we're, we're not recommending this. The board co collectively decided and wrote this report as a statement of where we stand and our conclusions. And so that's, uh, the clarification I was making in that email. Um, and the whole, the whole board, I guess, in answer to the question about 
the board process, yes, the whole board accepted that decision. Um, and I, I'm not sure I want to or need to get into the minutia of um, internal board um, timing and votes and minutes, but, um, but the, the, the entire board accepted that report as our public statement of our conclusions from our analysis over the last few months. Excellent. No, I think that's a that's a good summary clarification. I don't think we need to get into dates and things like that. Um, the second question is, why was the scenario planning and budget info redacted from the covenant report? And why isn't it a full report, including these numbers being made available? Or, or why isn't a full report, including these numbers being made available to the public? And the comment was, these numbers are essential to the complete report that was promised the public early this year, as well as the basis for the board's decision to close. So, so we addressed this last week. That's what I was uh, just gonna say. I feel like we answered this question last week. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering the answer to the question, go back to last week's podcast um, because we did specifically address this question. So let's go ahead and move on. Um, number three in that list is, why does the board conclude that resident fees must cover 100% of expenses nonprofits are expected to fundraise to accomplish their mission? We, we answered this last week as well. Yeah, um, I was like, I think, I think we covered that for sure. I, so I, again, go back to that other podcast because- I can't help get... myself but add one, one point go to it. Go for it, it. That's absolutely. Okay. Um, and this is a point we've made many times, and it goes in concert, I think, with what I was trying to say a minute ago about how the discussion has gotten off on fundraising for some reason, rather than inadequate staffing. Um, but uh, th this blanket concept that nonprofits are expected to fundraise to accomplish their mission is false. Many nonprofits rely on fundraising to accomplish their mission. But many nonprofits, like the nursing home, rely on fees that we get for the services rendered to accomplish our mission. It is the only way to operate safely and sustainably. We do rely greatly on fundraising from the community to help have additional programs, and more importantly, from time to time, for capital expenditures to grow or invest uh, in the facility. But for daily operations, we do not and cannot rely on fundraising. So I just want, can't, feel like we can't make that point enough because it keeps coming up for some reason. Yeah, and I think, I think the point that was made last week that really stuck out to me is we're not, you're not just here to reopen the doors, you have to be able to keep them open. Um, and so that's where that piece of a, a solid business plan has to come and, in. And we can't, like some nonprofits, just close the doors three days a week when we didn't raise enough. Right, exactly. Or not offer a program or two or something right. like that. Yeah. And nope. the other piece that I'd like to throw in about this is that in saying this, it somewhat minimizes to me the toll that closing takes on our residents and our staff. Our staff were devastated that they had to lose these residents. You know, it, it was like telling a family member they have to move out. And for the resident, they were being removed from their home. 
and to suggest that we should um, reopen with these huge gaps and cross our fingers that we're gonna be able to fill those gaps with fundraising. And if we can't possibly face having to do this all over again, just the mention of that idea um, brings tears to some of our former staff's eyes. Uh, and I'm not being dramatic when I say that. We've, we've witnessed it as a board. So I, I don't think people, just as they don't understand perhaps the, the staff, the, the incredible amount of staff that we need, I don't think they understand how much of a toll this really took on our residents and our staff. I think that's a valuable point. I'm glad that you added that and, and brought it to our attention because it's something that we all need to think about. These, this is lives that we're dealing with on a number of different levels. Yeah. Um, moving on to question four, uh, how have the recently increased reimbursement rates, PPP loan and other federal assistance, as well as the endowment been figured into the financial scenarios? Now, again, I think this was covered last week, but is there anything that you'd like to add before we move to the next question? Uh, I, I, I thought, I think we answered that last yeah. week. Okay. We talked about it in, in depth, I think so. Perfect. Um, now, I wish we had Skip Greenlaw here this morning. We do not, um, because the next question specifically references something in his uh, letter to the Island Advantages that he wrote last week. Um, so I'm hoping one of the two of you will sure. jump in in his sure, absence. Sure. But it says, Skip said in his letter to the paper that the Island Nursing Home Board did not want to begin fundraising without a plan. But the plan, as laid out in the task force report and public expectations, was to work to reopen. Why has the board made no effort to contact major donors and conduct a feasibility study after the task force issued its report? So I don't understand this question, really, because the task force report said you should conduct a feasibility study with an outside consultant which we did. So it says, why was there no feasibility study done? That is what we did with Covenant. So I, I guess I don't understand. Uh, I, I get Skip's point about the fundraising. And I, again, now I've made, well, I've made this point for the third time today. Um, without solving the staffing problem, we don't know what we're fundraising for. And so, uh, our conversations with donors have said, let us know what you need when you know what you need. And we don't yet know what we need that way because, or we didn't until the, the, the report was complete. So I think Skip's comment was, uh, we, we did not want to be out fundraising out ahead of knowing what we were raising that money for. Uh, but that's what he meant by the plan. Um, and so, so, but as far as the task force report giving us uh, guidance, it did. That guidance was to conduct a feasibility study, which we did. Um, and that feasibility study influenced our decisions greatly. And if I could add, we also did feasibility studies with Barry Dunn in modeling various scenarios. Right. So there were two different parties that contributed to independent of each other to those feasibility studies. I don't wanna give the impression that the bulk of our report relied on Covenant's report because that is not the case. We had 
many people involved. And so we did do due diligence from a feasibility perspective. Thank you both for speaking to that. And um, I think it's important that we keep the timeline clear, especially as we're getting further away from the task force report and things like that. So your clarification of, of how things occurred and when things occurred really helped to put that into perspective for, and, and that there has been a lot of work done um, since that task force report or recommendations came out. Um, let's move on to question six. Covenant and many others knew of the avail unavailability of foreign nurses as early as December. What changed and why is Covenant no longer interested in taking over the nursing home? I'll, I'll take that question. It's actually two questions and I'm gonna answer it as, as such. Sure. Um, first of all, we did not know that we could not obtain staffing foreign staffing in December. And in fact, when we were in conversations with Covenant in January and February, we still did not know that that was not an option. The foreign staffing became more troublesome, we learned as um, more and more COVID restrictions were put on uh, importing staff. And um, I had a conversation with uh, Senator Collins' office uh, earlier this week, and even they said that although the regulations have relaxed a little bit, there's still quite a backlog on foreign staffing. Uh, so, and we've heard that from both two different staffing agencies as well as a number of agencies that are employing staffing. So, many people have put their order, if you will, in to bring foreign staff over. But because of the complexities with work visas and the COVID restrictions, it's, it's created a backlog. And we did not know that. And I believe it was March or April when we learned that. So that's the first part of that question. The second part is Covenant was never engaged to take over the nursing home. And in fact, Covenant's model is they first enter a consulting agreement they then decide whether they feel the entity that they're looking at um, is something they want to manage so that they can get a better understanding of how that organization functions. And then they acquire it. Um, Bangor Nursing Home is a perfect example. They started out as a consultant. Then they were in a nine year management agreement before they actually acquired that facility. Um, when they did their consulting gig for us and determined it was not feasible, the idea of doing a management contract and or taking over was off the table. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense in terms of um, how covenant works. And also, I think we kind of spoke to this last week in that they Covenant came in and did a report in which it wasn't feasible for the nursing home to reopen. So that was their conclusion. Um, so probably it wouldn't have made sense anyway for them to then say, and we'll step in and we'll take this over um, because their results had already shown to them clearly uh, that reopening was not possible at this time. We point blank asked them, Do they, did they think that they could get us up and running in a management contract, and they said no. Okay, that pretty much says it all right there. Yes. Um, 
Let's move to question seven. Why has there been no discussion of whether or not staff would return to Island Nursing Home with different administration and governance? Again, kind of two questions in one, but there has been lots of discussion. Uh, when we had our outbreak in 2019, 2020, every single person who had worked with us for the three to five years prior was contacted because we were in such desperate need of staff. Um, those conversations continued after our COVID outbreak um, because again, the, we never really recovered as we've talked about before from a staffing perspective from that outbreak. And so there were continued conversations as we attempted to try to, um, to fill open positions. And as, as the last contact that was made in terms of uh, staffing specifically was in December when we did a survey to see who might be willing to come back. How many people did we actually have to work with? Um, and our HR director, Lori Mori, has continued to maintain relationships in conversation and keeping former staff updated right along, right up until our board report was issued. So there has been lots of discussion around that. Um, secondly, the question implies that neither the board nor the administration was up to the task of, of properly governing or managing the nursing home. And in fact, um, a complaint was made to Senator Collins' office about that very thing, that the nursing home was somehow being mismanaged, misgoverned. And we received a wonderful email from Senator Collins' office that their findings were that that was in fact not the case and quite the contrary. That every stone that we could think of was in fact investigated to see if there was anything we could possibly do. And um, thank you for sharing with me in advance that letter or email that you received from Senator Collins' office. Um, I just want to take a minute before we move on, and I want to read out loud one sentence that's in the third paragraph of the email that really <coughs> stuck out to me. And um, what it basically, and I'll actually, I'll read it word for word. It says, your willingness, and this is your being Rhonda and the Island Nursing Home Board, your willingness to discuss publicly available audited data regarding the nursing home's finances and administration, while also acknowledging challenges such as housing costs and staffing shortages that have affected a number of industries nationwide, but healthcare in particular, was helpful context. Um, and I, I really wanted to bring that up because I think one thing that keeps coming up is the, this idea of transparency and the fact that there's questions and questions are fine, um, but somehow implying that things have not been shared. And here we have Senator Collins' office actually thanking all of you for the amount of transparency that you've had with their office. Um, so I thought that was worth bringing out and kudos to you guys. Um, this email is great and definitely highlights the amount of work and the number of stones that you've un overturned trying to find answers to these questions. So with that, I'm gonna move on and I'm just gonna say before these next two questions that um, I'm putting the questions together. So bear with my voice for a little while. And they're complicated 
not in the answers necessarily, but there's a lot of questions within the questions. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Um, and I, I appreciate you guys tackling these, even though I'm probably asking them in a terrible way. <laughs> so bear with me. I'll try to, I'll try to do all the right pauses and not throw in extra words. So first of all, in the report the board published in the paper, it states that you met with DHHS officials. So DHHS is state, that's Department of Health and Human Services, on April 20th, and that the board still has several requests pending with them for interpretive rulings and accommodations that might somehow allow us to reopen as a nursing home. Have those questions been answered? What were the answers received? Has DHHS expressed any willingness to assist the island nursing home in discussions with CMS? So CMS is the Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services. That is the federal level of oversight on the nursing home. Who participated in the meetings regarding the requests? Then along similar lines, we move into question number nine. This is where you really have to bear with me. In the memorandum by John P. Doyle Jr. on Island Nursing Home's website, those representing the nursing home at the meeting with DHHS were to work on projections using the new rates, potentially in consultation with someone at Barry Dunn, consultants, Barry Dunn or consultants as I understand, and potentially with someone else in the rate setting department at the Department of Human Services health and human services. It later states that Rhonda and John P. Doyle Jr. set a number to determine whether reopening would not be feasible. Why was this decision independent of the board as a whole? By what authority do Rhonda and John Doyle act independently of the board? And has the advice to include Barry Dunn and the rate setting department at DHHS been acted upon? Wow, that was a mouthful. Whoever takes that, my hat off to you. Oh, you're a Rhonda. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> so the purpose of the meeting on April 20th with DHHS was to talk about our licenses and how to preserve them. And it was really a out-of-the-box brainstorming session, understanding there were a lot of regulatory limitations. And so we, we literally, if, you, if I can create a visual, had books all around us of regulations. And we'd ask a question and we'd look up what did DHH's regulation say and what did CMS regulation say and were they conflicting and how do we work around them? And so if you can imagine having these two different sets of regulations that oftentimes are not mirroring one another, there was a laundry list of questions that DHHS was going to have to take back to the, their powers that be. And their parting words around those list of questions is that the things we were asked, asking them to do has never been heard of before. They've never been done. And thus there wasn't an optimistic picture painted that it was possible. Um, so those questions have not been answered. Um, they did reach out and ask uh, for some financial data, which we have provided. Uh, they then asked for a performer, which Barry Dunn is working on. 
Um, we do not know why they're asking for that additional information, nor have we heard back from them. Uh, we have requested meetings and we're waiting for those meetings to be set up. So I think that answered quite a few. In regards to the rate, I wanna be clear about something. Rhonda, before you do that. Yes. While we haven't heard from them, they, they did confirm that they can help us with their with our staffing challenge. I, I'm sorry, that is correct. They have nothing to do with staffing, importing of staffing, arranging for staffing. Um, the state, and I don't know, frankly, of a state that does, does not have a pool of staff in the waiting in the event that someone is short staffed. Um, that's not what they do. And they were very clear that their role was strictly around licensing. And in fact, we asked, when are the new rates gonna be published? Um, there was talk in the newspaper that the governor was proposing a 25% rate increase. And we had not seen that come through nor had Covenant seen it come through when we had spoken with Coven, Covenant prior. Um, so we were still waiting to learn what this new rate was going to be. And while we were discussing this, our controller who was on the phone said, hey, I just got my letter, let me open it up. And that's when we learned what the rate was. And that rate was then plugged into the scenarios that both, uh, that Barry Dunn and as well as our internal folks had been doing all these different scenarios to see how much it changed uh, in terms of shortfalls. So there was no rate created by John Doyle or Rhonda Dodge. Um, the rate that was put in was the new rate that was provided in a letter by DHHS. And our response to that was our operating cost for a residential care person was a fixed number and the delta between the new rate and our rate was $75 a day. So again, no rate was created, no rate was set by Donna or I, we were not operating outside of the board. The board was well informed of the meeting and what our goal was for that meeting. And we stayed within the scope of work that was communicated with the board. Okay, so I'm just gonna reiterate one part of that that stood out to me. There was no setting of a rate by two people um, that are, are not, that rate is set at the state level and you get a letter from the state that says this is the rate and then Correct. you can plug it into the scenarios that you have about the cost of doing business. Does that? Correct. Okay, perfect. Correct. Thank you so much. So the much. recommendation for us to reach out to Peter was because there was no understanding because we were saying, where's this rate? We haven't gotten this rate. Okay, that makes sense. Let's move on um, to the next question. Question, actually it's question 10. In your or the Nur Island Nursing Homes published report, it also states that smaller facilities are not subject to the same regulations as a facility of Island Nursing Home size. Has there been consideration of a partial closure, meaning a reduction in the number of beds retained to fall under easier guidelines in order to reduce costs and remain open? So I feel like we kind of covered this in your update at the first part of we the did. podcast. Yeah, we did, but let me just make one additional point. Um, 
we kind of did this uh, in the year prior to closing. We reduced our census. Uh, the, the census is the number of residents or patients that we have. Um, we reduced that number. Well, we didn't reduce it. Uh, after the COVID outbreak, we chose not to go, increase it back to where it was. So, right. so we didn't make anybody leave, but we didn't allow it to go back up to normal. Uh, as a means of then by reducing that census, because we could not fully staff, as a means of operating as a, at a lower um, uh, cost. Um, and so, but still staying safe. Um, I think what this question is getting at though, is when we referred to the idea that um, uh, some facilities, which are very small, like a five bed kinds of facilities, um, uh, don't have all, a lot of the same regulations we have. However, we still would have to keep our entire facility operating in order to operate uh, that way. So, we, And so that is exactly why we've done the model I tried to describe in the beginning, which is what's the absolute minimum we could be as a nursing care facility, and that's five beds of nursing care and 12 beds of residential care. The reason we picked those numbers, by the way, is um, we're required for one nurse to, uh, for, for five beds to have one nurse coverage and for 12 residential care to have one nurse. Uh, we could have two instead of five, but if you've got a nurse, you might as well go to five <laughs> because right. the regulations let a nurse care for five, right? And same with 12, right? So, um, uh, so that's where we came up with five and 12 as the minimum. To operate less than that uh, in a building of our size that we still have to heat and um, and uh, secure and staff and uh, uh, would, wouldn't wouldn't be affordable at all. Absolutely, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, if I might add, when sure. when Tim was talking about reducing our census, we had gone from seventy to fifty five, hmm. and okay. and then modeled the the twelve and five that he spoke of. And as we talked about earlier, the, the difference between 12 and five and 55 total in terms of numbers of staff, very little difference, to be honest. If, and we were operating at that point with 65 staff people and we knew we needed closer to 85, 90. Okay. So we were still understaffed and everyone was just pitching in. Absolutely. Staffing was a major issue. But we know as great hearted and big hearted as it is for everyone to pitch in, that's not a sustainable plan. Um, yes. Everybody pitching in is has a limited, it has an expiration date, we'll say that. Yes, and, and even though we were able to sustain it for a while, when COVID hit, it became impossible because yes. the, the drop in staff was so dramatic. And the safety implications were so great. And people can only work so much. Oh, they can only overwork so much. It becomes unsafe. Exactly. And, and, and to even drive that point home, if I can, Tim, um, when we closed and all the staff um, no longer had to come back for a shift, we paid out earned time 
every single person had earned time because they were required to work so many extra shifts, nobody could take time off. Wow. So since our outbreak, uh, eight months later, people had all their accrued time still because there was no, there wasn't enough staff for people to even take a couple of days off to just decompress. After being through a traumatic experience, a COVID yes. outbreak at any long-term care facility, those employees work through trauma. And yeah. um, that's, that is really powerful that every one of those people ended up with earned time that they were not able to use. Um, yeah. I don't think we can, we can understate that. Um, I'm gonna move on to the next question. Uh, it's Island Nursing Home was created and has operated through public commitment and funding. Why has there been no opportunity for public comment during this process? And honestly, I would throw that out to the two of you, but I'm going to take this question because when I read it, um, I was kind of uh, taken aback because we have consistently scheduled these podcasts at each level of the COVID outbreak, the, the announcement of the closure, every single time. I have asked your members of your board or former staff members when I was interviewing them a question from the public or from me, there has been no hesitation to answer it. And we have had multiple call outs for public comment asking for questions to be submitted. Uh, my listeners have submitted questions. I have brought them back to you. You've answered them. Um, I also happen to be um, a person who set up a couple of different, or helped set up anyway, a couple of different public Zoom meetings a few months ago where the Island Nursing Home Board took questions from the public. Um, so I guess I was a little confused by this question. And I would like to say um, for those of us who have been here since the beginning and who recruited publicly for the task force and asked people to please, if they had concerns and they could serve in a capacity as a task force member to step up and let me know. Um, I feel like there's been no hesitation for public comment. So uh, that's my answer to that question. And unless you two have something to add, we're gonna move on to question 12. And um, thank you, I'll get off my soapbox. Well, in the, I guess the one comment I would add to that, Ian, is there was also an active COVID outbreak on the island when all this was going on as there is right now. And the board had talked about doing some sort of community outreach when we first announced, but we're in the middle of a COVID out outbreak and no one wanted to risk community by having an enclosed meeting. And it was the fall, winter was coming. <laughs> um, so I agree with you. I think we've tried to get the word out the best we can. And we've been always open to answering questions that have been provided. Well, Tim, and in do you fact, want to add anything? I, I would add only that this question is on a list of questions solicited from the public for comment. So like, <laughs> I'm not sure, I agree with you, Anne. I, I, the, I, think, I think we're delighted to take any questions people have. Rhonda's right, it's difficult at, for us to have a big uh, public forum. We've talked about it a lot, but the timing is difficult. Um, but. Uh, we will continue to welcome anybody's inquiry and we called in our report for feedback about ideas for our next phase. So 
we'll continue to do that. Well, and uh, just one more thing before I, I truly go on to the next question. Um, Rhonda, you also met with select boards, right? Which were public meetings that people could attend. I, I attended the Stonington select board meeting. Um, the Deer Isle select board did not want me to attend, but I did attend a two town uh, virtual Zoom meeting and answered questions on that. All right, thank so, you. So yes. All, it's been so, you know, we're getting into months of history now. So I'm remembering these things and they, they come up and I can remember you because I think there was even a picture in the newspaper of you standing up in front of the Stonington Select Board. So you are correct. All right. See, my memory. Uh, sometimes I can really rely on it. <laughs> I've right. forgotten about that. They even did it in color. Yes, it was a color picture. You're right. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that little walk down memory lane. We're doing well this morning. Um, let's move on then to the next question, um, which is question 12. Again, in your published report, staffing is referred to as the major issue preventing Island Nursing Home from continuing. Noting that Blue Hill Hospital is reducing its occupancy and staff, what conversations have occurred with their human resources department regarding staffing opportunities at the nursing home? I'll take this question if you don't mind, Tim. No, sure. um, when we first announced, I actually reached out, not specifically to the HR person at Blue Hill, because they have a centralized HR up at Northern Light. Um, but I actually spoke to the person who was in charge of the home health um, division. And he works closely with the Blue Hill Hospital. And we talked about not only us hiring that staff, which it turns out was redeployed to other uh, locations or will be redeployed to other locations. But we also talked about um, whether they were interested in partnering with us, um, helping to provide some staff while the uh, building was being rebuilt. We talked about them possibly using our staff and our building to help with some of their services so that they could continue. We looked at all different options about how we might kind of partner together so that they could achieve their results of keeping their staff employed and um, achieving our result by keeping our staff employed and also perhaps keeping our building going and operational while their building was being torn down. And their response was, oh no, we're gonna redeploy our staff and in fact, we wanna hire your staff. And so they uh, worked with Lori Mori, our HR director, in helping to place some of our staff within their own organization. So we did, we did pound that bush and we, we did try to uh, explore a number of different options with them. So that, that actually reminds me of another sentence. I'm sorry, I'm gonna keep reading from this um, report or letter email that was sent from Susan Collins' office where they give you credit. Um, the board has worked tirelessly to research potential paths forward. And then they name a number of different organizations that you've worked with. And then they say, it is clear that you intend to leave no stone unturned. Um, so when I hear that you had those conversations with Northern Light and that's where they went, it just reminded me, it's, I feel like at this point you have left no stone unturned. Like I would definitely agree with um, 
Senator Collins' office statement there. Well, so, and in and in fact, Northern Light sent a representative from the board of the Home Health Division came and toured our building. Oh, okay. To see so, what our building looked like, what our staff complement was, to see if that was something they could do. Got it. So that again, no stone unturned. Let's move on to question 13, which is what is the plan to maintain the INH building while a decision is made about its next uses? Again, I feel like we pretty much, we covered this, this question exactly, I think last week in the podcast. So I'll encourage my listeners, if you're interested in building maintenance and how that's being taken care of in the interim, go back to last week's episode um, because Rhonda talks about that as something that she is passionate about. So I think she gave quite a complete answer last week. Um, so that moves us on to what is actually our last question this week. Um, and that is on last week's podcast, Tim stated that the board is managing, and again, they use the figure approximately 2.5 million in financial investments. I think we clarified that last week in the podcast, but I'll let you yeah, do yeah, that yeah. again. Um, um, okay. Go ahead. It, well, the rest of the question says, who on the board has professional fund management experience? What is the board's investment policy? And are you willing to share it? So, so um, I don't, I'm not sure where this $2.5 million keeps coming from. Uh, in fact, in the podcast last week, I said, we do not have $2.5 million. Exactly, so, exactly. I remember that. Say that again. Uh, what I also said, and I'll say it again, is we have uh, two investments accounts kind of. One is ours. It's, um, it's currently got about a half a million dollars in it. And that is earmarked at the moment to continue to keep the building functioning uh, and pay some you know, monthly expenses that we continue to incur. And a portion of that is earmarked uh, to pay back money that we might be responsible to pay back to the state. Um, uh, if anybody cares, it's a bit of a complicated process by which the state uh, advances payments in effect, and then they have to ad adjudicate whether or not we have to pay those back. Whether we, so we have to hold some of that in reserve in that in that event. So that's the kind of that half a million dollars. In addition to that, we have an, an endowment, which is not really ours. Um, it is um, we are allowed to benefit from the returns that that endowment generates. That endowment is a million million dollars plus some gain it's had uh, in the market in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, and so, but we're, we're only allowed to spend 7% of that. So that's, that's not money we can just go spend. And we don't, we, we don't really think of that as ours. We think of that as generating some, some money. Um, so again, this 2.5 million that we own is just, a, it's just, a, it's just not, I, I don't, I don't know where that's from. Okay. As far as, as far as our investment strategies, uh, we, um, have a very simple and very conservative uh, uh, investment strategy in index funds that has uh, got a balance between uh, equities and, um, and bonds that uh, has been established. I think that policy was established uh, five, seven, eight years ago. 
and then we haven't adjusted. Uh, we don't draw on those funds much. We've had two more since the closure because we don't have revenue. We don't draw on those funds much, but when we do, we draw from both buckets to keep the balance the same. Um, sure. So um, it's a, it, like I said, it's, it is Warren Buffett's very conservative and simple investment strategy uh, for, for funds at this top, which is in, in my experience common among nonprofits like us. So, um, so I don't know, I, I'll answer that again, and, but I, I don't, I, hopefully that clarifies anybody's questions. That's great. Thank you for answering that. Um, again, cause we, that 2.5 million, it just won't go away. It keeps coming up as a figure. Um, no, no, so answer. we'll clarify that, uh, one more time. So that comes to the end of my community questions, but now I, I have to share your action items with you because at, on last week's podcast, we asked listeners to please let me know of any ideas that they would have for the Island Nursing Home building that would benefit seniors. And I got a couple of suggestions I want to share with you. So grab your pencils and paper. Um, one listener in particular uh, talked about the fact that she would like to see an old-fashioned boarding house type style structure happen uh, for older people who did not want to or could not safely live in their homes anymore or maintain a home, but were not ready for a nursing home level of care. So I promised to pass that on. And the other suggestion that I got was to somehow open up the building for the use of nonprofits in the area so that the different nonprofits that serve seniors could have office space in common areas that would better help us to collaborate and work together because we would be working closely in the same space. Both of those ideas I thought were great and I promised to pass them on to you. And so I have made good on that promise. Um, and I would encourage my listeners to keep reaching out with ideas. Um, there is no idea that's too out of the box. Um, we're, we're entertaining any, any idea of a use for the building that would benefit seniors. So with that, I thank you so much, Tim and Rhonda. Thanks for, thanks for this. Yeah. Um, for, go ahead, and, Rhonda. And if I could just um, chime in for a second. Oh, sure. I greatly, I greatly appreciate these two uh, suggestions. They're definitely in alignment with our idea of how do we serve our seniors. We have heard some rumors about the building being turned into a fitness center. That oh. is not true. <laughs> there has been no discussion about us turning the building into a fitness center. Okay, so our thank mission, you for... Yeah, go ahead. Our mission is to move forward and support our seniors. And so I, I appreciate these ideas that you've put forth as being in alignment with that. And I want the community to know that there has been no discussion about us becoming a fitness center, that well, we're Ron not even close to that type of discussion. Rhonda, you would have no way of knowing this, um, but next week for my regular podcast episode, I am putting out an episode where I talk with Jeannie Hatch of the Island Community Center because they are opening a fitness center there for the island. Um, so it, it, there will be a fitness center on the island. It will be at the island community center. It will be open 24 seven. Um, and so I don't know if maybe some wires got crossed there and that's how it started about the, the fitness center at the nursing home. Um, but we are getting a fitness center. So that is great news, but that piece has been taken care of. 
by another nonprofit. And there'll be many more details about that next Friday. Um, Great. Thank you for clarifying that because we were scratching our heads trying to figure out how that even came up in conversation. Exactly. But but the island is getting a fitness center. So that piece is going to be taken care of. Thanks again, both of you. Yeah. Thanks again for sitting down with me and having this conversation. I really appreciate it. We'll continue to have these conversations. We'll continue to keep the public informed. And I just want to reiterate what an amazing job you guys are doing and looking at every option out there and figuring out what's best for this community. Great. Thanks, Anne.